Hello and welcome. I'm Alex Promos, Head of Institutional Content and Investment Magazine, and this is Market Narratives. This show is a series of unorthodox conversations with thought leaders influencing the world of fiduciary investors. For more related insights and analysis, please remember to check out our website, investmentmagazine.com.au, and subscribe for a free email. And with that, please enjoy this week's episode. Today, I'm joined by Rob Petrini, who is the co-head of Performing Credit as part of Blackstone Credit. Rob, welcome. Alex, thanks for having me. So today, we're going to be talking about private credit. It's been an incredibly fast-moving trend in the Australian marketplace. Can you maybe walk through what you do in the private credit market and what are your thoughts around this large increase in investor demand that we've seen probably in the last three years, particularly in the Australian market? Uh, sure. Um, so as you mentioned, I'm, I'm co-head of, of uh, performing credit uh, at Blackstone. Um, I, I really focus on a, a host of different products, but all within the performing world. So companies that are, uh, are performing well, uh, moving in the right direction and, and looking to make investments in those companies. So get to see really in, in my role, a, a very broad swath of, of what's going on out there. And, and when you think about perform, when you think about private credit, rather, you know, it's, it's really a pretty broad asset class. Uh, so it, it covers a bunch of different kinds of funds, right? There's, there, there's more senior-oriented funds, more junior-oriented funds. Um, and it's been something that's been around for quite some time in various forms, uh, but, but it's really taken off in the past 10 years. And so when you think about what private credit is, historically, a, a company would go to a bank to get a loan. Uh, they'd hold that loan on their balance sheet, um, or, or they would syndicate out the risk to others. Uh, instead of what's happening in private credit is those companies are borrowing directly from funds uh, like the funds I'm associated with, who then hold the loans themselves. Um, and they're then negotiating on a bilateral basis uh, with the company to offer them a private debt transaction. And that could be in the form of a first lien deal, uh, a second lien oriented deal, unsecured, mezzanine, you know, really anything and everything. Um, and I think one of the advantages is obvious, obviously you do have the ability to structure it in any way uh, that makes the most sense for that pocket of capital. So as you're thinking about the types of companies that, that have been moving into this space or at least using it to source capital, have you seen a, a transformation in those types of businesses or particular sectors that have moved into private credit? Yeah, it's, it's, it's actually pretty interesting. So when you think about when private credit really took off, it, it took off during the, the, the global financial crisis, uh, which, which makes a good amount of sense, right? Because you, you had the banks pulling out, uh, no longer able to carry risk on their balance sheets the way they had been historically. Um, and really moving away from uh, from the debt markets. And, and the reality is in the United States, uh, we've actually seen the number of, of financial institutions decline something like 69% uh, since the mid mid 80s. And so what, what where private credit first made inroads was in smaller deals, uh, in middle market deals, uh, where the banks just weren't focusing on it at all. And then over time, what you saw is an expansion of that. And so the reason you've seen that expansion is I, I think private credit brings a lot to the table and, and, and you know, that, that's probably a good discussion to have, but there's a lot of things that, that, that they can provide, we can provide in private credit that are harder for a bank to provide directly to issuers. But we have in fact seen that the, the market start to expand, particularly into some of the larger companies. And it's an example of, of kind of the lower end of the market from a size perspective, actually innovated innovating and then, and then delivering that up to uh, some of the larger companies as they saw some of the advantages. And so what we're seeing today uh, is, is much larger transactions in general uh, as some very large sponsors and some, some large companies are actually looking to get the same benefits out of the private credit market that the middle market and, and lower end of the market have been doing for some time. 
So as you look at the types of deals that are being done, you mentioned about the private credit. Um, you know, space provides more help to to the people that are looking for money. What what does that look like? You know, is it is it the flexibility? Is it the ability to work more closely um, with the issuer versus a, a traditional bank? What else is being offered that makes people go down this particular route to take private credit versus just doing a, a public offer? Yeah, you know, it's it's a it's a good question. Ultimately, I, I think there's a, there's a number of things that, that we bring to the table, and, and you know, every every, every situation is a bit different. But you know, speed of execution is a good example. We have the ability to control our own process uh, and, and really get things done on a timeline uh, that can be can be pretty uh, pretty well refined. Uh, certainty to close. We, we're 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 investing for our own account, right? And so, and so we we don't need to go out and syndicate debt, for example. We we know where it's going to go. Uh, structuring flexibility. We're not really tied into a specific structure. We have a bunch of different funds and, and the private credit universe has a bunch of different funds uh, that, that can really solve a whole host of different products and, and really be more creative. Now, one of the other things I think that we've seen over time is, is a lot of the, the, the parties who are accessing the, the private credit market repeatedly, they really appreciate the fact that they're dealing with a single sophisticated holder. Uh, and, and that's a holder as a partnership mentality, right? Because they're, they're, they're going back into the market repeatedly uh, dealing with the same parties again, and their reputation is important. And so you, you get into a difficult situation, that party's a lot more likely to be, uh, to be rational. And that ultimately leads usually to a better outcome for, for everybody. Um, and then there's a lot of smaller things. It's, it's, it's candidly less distracting to management teams because there aren't things like a roadshow or rating agency presentations uh, that, that, that need to get pulled together. And then finally, what I would say, we're looking to ultimately not be just a commodity capital provider. So in a lot of instances, we're able to bring expertise to the table that, that's pretty differentiating. Maybe it's a diligence angle or operating knowledge or access to, to other parts of our portfolio, uh, but really trying to position that private capital as, as differentiated and not just the cheapest capital provider. That was my next point, which is around whether you know, private credit is actually more expensive than public. And you've given an example of not just being commodity capital and there's other sources that you can almost sell towards as, as well. You know, how, I guess for potential companies that are looking to, to issue via the private space, is there a potential sweet spot for the size of loans that are done via private versus then going to the public market? Yeah, the, the, you know, increasingly, I would say there is not a sweet spot. You know, historically, certainly it, it has gotten bigger over time, right? And so if, if you'd have asked me that question, even a few years ago, I would have said you know, $150 million starts to become a fairly big deal um, in, in, in this market. But, but today, you know, we're seeing deals pulled together of a billion dollars plus. And, and so it, that, that goes to my earlier point of really having seen uh, the, the, the market expand pretty meaningfully. And, and again, it's, it's just larger companies seeing a lot of those advantages that I laid out and saying that, well, we want to take it. We want we want to have those same advantages. And to answer the first part of your question, it usually is coming at a premium. I mean, we we don't we're not trying to price private capital directly on top of of where the public markets would price. You have to remember we're capturing things like fees in the private credit universe and and delivering those directly to our investors. Whereas in in a public environment, you've got a bank who's capturing those fees for themselves. And then they're really looking to place the debt as inexpensively as possible, right? And so really working it down to the lowest common denominator um, by, by placing it with a bunch of different parties. And so uh, there is usually a premium, uh, but, our, but the best clients in private credit recognize that, that, it, that it's worth that premium. 
let's let's maybe go into the types of companies that you're looking at and as you're sourcing these deals that that's obviously a really critical piece and banks historically have had the network uh, more broadly across the country across the world to to get these access to deals how do you look at um, sourcing these deals and then ultimately how do you then work out which are the ones that you want to do versus the ones that you know don't don't fit with your remit yeah well look that's that's kind of the magic sauce right is, is you need to be able to uh, you need to be able to source the deals or the, or the whole thing falls apart, <laughs> falls apart pretty quickly. And so you know, what, what I would say is at a high level, not all platforms are created equal, right? So as I mentioned, the, the private credit universe is, is very, very big. Um, and so there's a whole, whole, a whole host of different ways to play it. And in some instances, you, you've got uh, basically what are, are club debt deals. Uh, so they're organized by a third party placement agent who, who's been hired by the company to go out and, and just find private uh, private credit providers to come into their deal. My view is that you really want a more differentiated origination platform than that, because that that starts to feel a lot like the, the, the syndicated market of the banks of the past, right? You've got somebody who's out skimming the fees. They're looking to place the paper. Um, you don't have direct access to the management team or the, or the, or the, or the company necessarily the, the way you normally would. Um, a more differentiated platform is going at it much more directly. And so, uh, you would expect to have, for example, a sophisticated sponsor coverage effort where you, you've hired people who are specifically engaged uh, with, with the whole sponsor community and, and, and staying in front of them and making sure that they know all the different advantages that, that you can bring to bear. If you're part of a larger organization like we are, you're harvesting ideas from that organization, right? Like looking at different parts of the business, trying to harvest uh, relationships that come out of a private equity part of the business or a real estate part of our business. Um, you know, that, that, that all leads to, uh, to, to better deal origination. Right? We're developing direct company relationships in, in many instances. Uh, there's lots of third parties who, who are looking to introduce deals in, into the system as well. And so, you know, there, there is no one way, right? And, and what's nice about it, and it varies in, in different parts of the business, but it, it really is, what you want it to ideally be is a virtuous cycle, right? You do something that's special and unique, and then you can go out and advertise that you did this special, unique thing and then replicate that, right? And so that, that's really how we try to source it. But we, we want to have a very large funnel. If you think about investing as a funnel, you want the top to be really, really big um, to capture as many deals as possible. And then you want the investment process to narrow at the bottom to eliminate the, the worst deals. Do you find that a lot of the companies that you work with are repeat clientele, like they're growing as, you know, as a business and now you're actually, your loan book to them is, has, has increased? Yeah, it's, it's interesting. So a big part of our business is driven by sponsor relationships, right? So private equity firms who are out repeatedly buying companies, and, and, and those are some of our best repeat customers. So if we develop a good relationship institutionally with them, and then personally for a lot of our, uh, the individual members of the team, um, we, we do see a lot of repeat business. And so I, I think uh, off the top of my head, I, th I think the most we've done with any individual um, counterparty is something like it's 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 north of 15 deals. So so quite quite a few. It, it's it's also the case that once we've been a lender to company to a company, think of it as you know sort of the home court advantage, right? You're you're in the company, you know it, you develop a relationship with the management team. Um, hopefully that that's been a positive experience, and and so you do have a good position if if the company wants to refinance or if it wants to go and do a new deal, or if it sells to a new party, for example. You know, the other thing we'll do just on this topic is because we do have a lot of capital, what we wanna do is kind of land and expand, right? So make an investment and then grow with that company. Provide it the capital to continue to grow, 
uh, help it do acquisitions, help it fund its growth plans, uh, and really be a part of that company's success. And again, that, that breeds uh, a, a good dynamic. The other interesting thing apart about that is it does give us an advantage over, for example, a bank run syndication, because in most instances, it's hard to tack onto that deal. So they're usually going out and doing a full refinancing, which takes longer, a lot more fees, and just ends up being more expensive. Well, as you, as you now flip to the other side and you look at private credit, from an investor point of view, how do, you, how do they think about the risk to return trade-off across the market? Private credit obviously is not a homogenous group, many different types of uh, lenders on the other side. How do you think yep. about, uh, or how should an investor think about that? Yeah, so I'm, I'm obviously biased since this is, what I, this is what I do for a living and have been doing for, for basically ever. But, but I, I, think it's, I think it's a really compelling opportunity for investors. And when you take a step back and think about it, the real question people need to ask is, do they have room in their portfolio uh, for illiquidity? Because th that is really the primary uh, negative from uh, an investor's perspective is, is that this is, these are not liquid loans, right? We're, we're, we're usually investing and we're coming out uh, when we're either refinanced uh, or the company sells uh, or is sold and, and, and we get taken out as a part of that. And so if you look in basically all of our portfolios and you think about how we come out of deals, it's it, the vast majority is always because of sale of the company or refinancing. And, and so they are illiquid, uh, but they come with a substantial illiquidity premium, right? In general, our coupons are higher. Uh, I mentioned already that we're capturing fees. So the underrating fees that, that a bank would, would charge we're capturing those and distributing those to our, our limited partners uh, or our investors. You know, we, we generally have better call protection. And what I mean by that is that, you know, if they take us out uh, or refinance us early, we get paid a fee uh, because of that, which drives a better multiple of capital. Um, and so when you add that all up, you, you could be looking at a couple hundred basis points, uh, depending on the strategy, more uh, of, of illiquidity premium. And so the real question is in a, in a difficult environment to, to find good yield, is that worth it? In my view, the answer is, is yes. And, and, and then how much, how loudly you say yes to that will depend on how much you can tolerate the illiquidity. Um, I'll also point out that the illiquidity that, that comes with some positives, right? You're not going to have the same volatility in, in, in this portfolio that it would in a, um, in, a, in a portfolio that gets marked to market and gets traded regularly publicly. So you should expect more stability from that perspective. And then from a core risk perspective, you know, it's, it's hard to argue that we don't understand our companies much better than, than you would uh, in, in a public market deal. We're doing direct diligence. We're getting to know these, these management teams. We're getting to know the owners. We're sitting on, on, on the boards of directors in many instances. Uh, and so we, we know these companies. We know our portfolios like the back of our hand. Um, we negotiate much better documents. And so we're negotiating the documents that exist here, the credit agreements, and alike uh, for, again, our own account, for our investors. And so we take it very seriously. And in general, you're going to see them being much more restrictive than you would in a typical uh, leverage loan uh, document, for example. I guess you could also say that to some degree, you're also a little bit more flexible in terms of when there is distress or coming up to a default too. So it's not just being restrictive. It's you've got that understanding of where the business is trading at and where they potentially may need some additional help. I think that, look, I think that is a really good point. The, the reality is that a lot of the time when you see carnage in, in restructurings, it's because people make bad decisions, right? And so, you know, we, we're, not, <laughs> we're not obligated to make bad decisions. We don't have a structure which forces us to do things that are economically irrational 
Um, we understand that, that, that what's going on with these companies. We understand when they need money or when they just need time or space. Um, I think COVID has been a great example of that, right? Where, where we were in a completely unique environment and, and a lot of our portfolio companies across the platform were in a period of, of, of not really knowing what, what to face because nobody knew what, what was ahead of us. And so uh, I think acting in a thoughtful way has really differentiated us with, with a lot of our clients because of that. And I think it's going to lead to much better outcomes uh, at the end of the day. You mentioned uh, the, the issues around COVID earlier last year. Um, I'm curious to get your thoughts on terms of what was March and April 2020. Was that just a, a dislocated market uh, or, or was that just an opportunity for distressed credit to, to really fly, um, to, to prosper, I guess, from, as an opportunity set? Yeah, well, look, it, it, it was uh, unique in, in my career. Uh, I've never seen anything like it in, in terms of just the, the speed which, with, which, with which things went down. Um, you're obviously facing an environment where uh, a, a person I know phrased the best is like, not only am I worried about my, my portfolio, but I'm worried about my health at the same time, right? So there's, there's a lot to deal with. And you were seeing you know, the sharpest operating declines in some of our portfolio companies that, that any of us have ever seen. So very, very, very unique. Uh, and the markets um, reacted accordingly. <laughs> it, was, it was definitely a stressful time to be an investor you saw a lot of capital raised during that period. And, and a lot of that capital was really raised with the notion of being distressed, uh, focused. You know, that, that is not, you, know, you hear it in, in, in what I do. I'm, I'm on the performing side. Now, that doesn't mean we're not doing opportunistic investing. We, we are, in fact, doing opportunistic investing. But we don't really focus on companies that would, for example, be deeply impacted in a potentially permanent way by COVID, right? If the company trades off or if, if there's an opportunity um, to, to invest at an opportune time that otherwise wouldn't exist. Well, that's great. We want to take advantage of that for sure, but we don't want to be taking core operating risk. And I think a lot of the capital that was raised uh, was really focused on investment grade, or, or sorry, it was really focused on distress, quite the opposite. Um, and and you know, I, I, my personal opinion is that, that you probably raised too much capital uh, during that period. And so you, know, you, you quickly saw a, a change in the markets that was driven not by the fundamentals or the operating performance, uh, because we, we really haven't gotten through this yet, but but much more by um, just the the, the, the the amount of capital in the markets, a lot of the the, the actions that the government took. And so I, I think there, there was a there was a period of time that was much shorter than probably almost any of us would have forecast uh, where you could have made some some pretty compelling uh, oppor opportunistic investments. Uh, but that turned around pretty quickly. And now a lot of the, the dynamics that exist in the market today uh, are much more driving us to a, a, a healthier environment where, you know, if, if anything, we're seeing um, returns compress. I want to go back to to March last year and April last year. We, we saw a lot of government impact, um, a lot of stimulus loans and so forth. How much did that affect your sector? Well, I think where it, I think where it affected us, so there's a couple different ways. Um, you know, when you kind of look back and, and think about what we were doing at that point in time, there was a lot of soul searching and, and individual company analysis within our portfolios of what companies could benefit from direct stimulus, right? So take, take the aerospace industry. Was there an opportunity to take uh, government money? Now, I would say by and large, our portfolio was not particularly meaningfully impacted by that. In, in most instances, we really were not, our, our portfolio companies were not beneficiaries of that. I think where we were impacted was with the speed of the recovery of, of, the, of the capital markets in, in general, right? So I think what we saw um, was, was very quickly capital rushing back into the market 
uh, which, which turned on its head the, the, the dynamic that we were seeing from a secondary market. And then over the course of a few months, sort of changed the primary market uh, as well. And so um, there's no question that, that the rapid action of the government, uh, I, I think, really turned the markets around. But if, if the question is more directed at the specific capital injections, that we were not particularly impacted by those is the reality. I asked the question because a number of the institutional investors are, I think, always living with the hope that governments will come in to support markets <laughs> when they come, yeah. you know, when there's a problem. Uh, I hear it all the time in different advisory boards that we hold. And so I asked the question because is there now going to be this expectation that whenever uh, this credit part of the market starts to get into trouble, that there will be more support? You know, it, it's, a, it's a great question. I, I don't think... I don't think that the government's acted with the intent of preserving the credit markets. I think the government's acted with the intent of preserving the economy, right? So you were in, if you look at how rapidly uh, the, the, the I'll, I'll speak about the US government, but the, how rapid, but it's, it's true for, for most of, of uh, most governments around the world, how quickly they acted compared to, for example, the global financial crisis. I mean, it's pretty remarkable, right? Now, some of that's lessons learned, uh, but, uh, but a lot of it was just dealing with a very specific and unique situation with a with a with a, a known end, you didn't know what what the end when the end was going to occur, but you knew that you needed to kind of bridge to a period where people could go back to work, where you can understand what you were dealing with and really try to get through to the other side. Um, and and you very obviously were dealing with things like extraordinary unemployment um, and extraordinary operating uh, distress in a lot of sectors. And so I think that really got the government to act much more quickly than they would in, in virtually any other situation. But, but that, that's very much my, my personal opinion. I don't think it, it's, it's necessarily the case that next time we see the credit markets trade off for more normal reasons that we'll, we'll see a government step in. I think that's a much harder sell. Now, let's go back also to another point that you talked about. There was a huge amount of capital raised. Uh, so I, I asked the question then in terms of, is there just too much capital now in this sector? Uh, and will it compress obviously the the opportunities that are that are out there and the potential yields that are that are available. Yeah, I, I think the, the answer to that question is is a little bit dependent on on what part of the market we're talking about. Now, now, now the reality is that a lot of that, a lot of the the, the the capital that was raised was targeting the distressed opportunity or the perceived distressed opportunity. Now, what we have seen is an an extraordinary. Um, an extraordinary return to, 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 to or, or extraordinary tightening of returns uh, in the distressed sector. So across the board, uh, in a very short period of time, what we saw was the, the, the return profile in these distressed funds, or, or certainly the, 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 the reasonable return profile for these distressed funds compressing significantly because there were, were a lot of, uh, there were a lot of funds pursuing the same set of opportunities. And so, you know, when I look at the distressed markets today, they're, they're candidly quite hard. Um, you're just not getting any kind of meaningful premium for taking operational risk that, that, that makes sense to me. And, and so, you know, I, I do think you've seen uh, too much capital raised in, in certain areas. Um, when you look at something, for example, like regular way direct lending, uh, that's a much different story where we're really seeing direct lending continue to take share from regular way bank lending, you know, in that part of our business, as an example, we've we've never been busier, and 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 we've we've we're seeing terrific opportunities across the board, and that really is because you're seeing a secular shift in that market uh, to 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 just kind of natural growth. Um, so I, the the answer to the question really varies depending on where we're talking about within private credit, but I think there's there's little question that that the, this the stress has come under undue stress, if you if, if you will. 
Let's transition to another really big issue, which is around transparency. Um, and I wanted to ask if there's any sort of material differences between sort of the public and private issuers, particularly now as there's more and more focus on the environmental, social and governance uh, concerns that many of the institutional asset owners are, are more and more worried about. Yeah. Um, look, I think one of the big advantages that, that, that we have as, as private credit lenders is that we, we do get more information. Um, so taking a step back, you know, I, I've talked a little bit about how the, the diligence process is so much more detailed, right? We're spending months with the company before we invest. Uh, well, those relationships we develop, uh, they, they continue on after we make the investment. Um, and, and they are, we are typically a part of, of the board of directors, for example, whether that's as a, a board observer uh, or a board director board, or, or actually having a board director seat. Um, but, but in almost all instances, we do have some presence. Uh, which, which I think obviously gives us a greater level of information on the company than you, you would have just as, as somebody who bought a loan in the syndicated markets. Um, similarly, when you think about the reporting we get, we're typically getting monthly reporting. So each month we're getting all the information that, for example, the financial sponsor would get or certainly a, a, a good subset of it. Uh, and so we're able to really trace and track what's going on with the company on a month-to-month -month basis. And, and I think that is, that is quite helpful. Now, hitting on ESG specifically, you know, th this is a huge focus at, at, at Blackstone. Uh, this, this is an area where we want to be a leader. We have integrated our ESG considerations into our diligence process. You know, every investment committee memo uh, includes an outline of, of, of ESG considerations and, and, and really highlights all the concerns, if there are any, and, and, and positives, if there are any. Um, we've worked it into operational processes. Uh, we have operational folks who help our portfolio companies uh, be better at, at ESG. And so th this is something that, that we really take very seriously. I think it's something we can certainly continue to do better on. Uh, it's something that we will continue to do better on. Uh, and you know, you said it, it's amazing that the, the dialogues I'm having today, the frequency with which this topic comes up is amazing compared to what it was even, even a few years ago. And, and so this is gonna remain something that's very important. Um, it's, it's, it's important because that the people investing in our funds care about it. And it's important because it's, 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 just, it's just important, right? Like th this is what we should all be doing. And so, you know, I, I think being a part of a large organization, we've got a lot of tools uh, that help us monitor things like this, whether it's performance of the underlying portfolio companies or in terms of um, you know, some of the commitments that we've made to, to make our, our, our portfolio more ESG friendly. Well, the, the, the real hard part in this particular market is if there is some, some particular social issue, um, whether it's a labor issue or it's some other environmental issue, there is an actual impact to the underlying business. So it's not just yep. the, the flag that there's a problem. Uh, the underlying business can be affected, whether it's a lawsuit or it's uh, losses just because of the damage that they now need to uh, repair, for example, or to rectify. No, that, that's right. Look, I think the long-term health of these companies is, is enhanced by being focused on these issues. And, and whether it's focusing on diversity at the board level or you know, focusing on making the right decisions um, from an environmental perspective, uh, th these are important things to the success of these companies long-term. And, 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 and by focusing on them, we're making them better companies. And, and honestly, you know, we, we wanna get away from investing in companies or, or, or industries or sectors where, where that's, that's, we don't feel good about it. Is it possible to put some sort of other uh, covenants you know, or triggers that, that cause penalty to these organizations for doing um, you know, issues that, that maybe are against what you've agreed to at the start of the, of the deal? Yeah, I mean, look, it's, it's something that, that we're actually exploring is, is how do you enforce? And it's, it's not 
it's not necessarily obvious, nor, nor is it the case that, that it, it, it's going to be the same in every situation. You know, one of the things, one of the disadvantages we have as a, as a, as a private credit business versus say a private equity business is we don't own these companies, right? We, it's not as easy as walking in and saying, you'll do this because, because I'm the boss. Um, you know, we do have to try to manage these things to some extent, but by leading by good example and, and the like, um, we certainly can have them rep to 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 where they where, what they're doing. We can certainly do diligence around it. Um, it it's it's pretty atypical today to have something where there's actually a penalty uh, that, that comes into play because they don't continue to do those things. Um, but but you know we're open to any and all suggestions, and I, and I think you're going to continue to see this topic uh, substantially evolve in in the near future. Let's move to the final topic, and, and that is where is the risk in this space? Um, a lot of Australian investors, institutional investors, have been looking at this asset class. Now, this asset class is obviously not homogenous. You know, how do you talk to them about that process in terms of as they're looking at the asset class, uh, what should they be considerate of? Yeah. So, look, I think to understand credit investing in general, what you have to have to really ultimately accept is that you're going to have manageable downside risk. Uh, assuming that, that the process is working well, but you're also going to have limited upside as well, right? It's it's not as if you're going to invest in a in a in a, 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 a direct lending investment and make three times your money, and so what all that means is that in this sort of investing, mistakes really get magnified. Um, it, it's very important to get it right. Uh, principal impairment is going to really impact returns. I also have to just ask one short question, and I know it's there's no simple answer to it, and that is around how do you relatively work out where does this fit in the portfolio? You know, is it a comparison to sort of some sort of high yield listed market, or is it just a standard index like a a global ag plus two percent or three percent? What are you seeing, I guess, in terms of asset owners? Yeah, it's it's typically the case that we are compared, and 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 I will I will caveat up front: this varies dramatically by by, by our partners. Uh, and we get asked all the time. Um, it's typically the case that we're compared to, and it, you know, I, I should also caveat that it depends on what fund and what strategy, but we compare to some index. So let's say it's the leveraged loaned index, and then it's usually some premium, right? And so in our direct lending business, it would be the leveraged loan index plus some premium. And in our capital opportunities fund business, which is more junior capital, you know, it's the high yield index plus some premium. And, and so now that's usually how we're compared, but, but the reality is, um, you know, if, if you if we were to look at, at ten limited partners, you may have ten different uh, t- different benchmarks that they use. All right, that's been a fantastic conversation. Thank you very much for your time today, Rob. No, it's a pleasure. Thanks. Uh, th- I welcome the conversation, and, and thanks for having me on. Thank you for joining us. All views expressed on this podcast are subject to change and do not necessarily reflect the views of Connexus Financial. This podcast is for educational purposes only and should not be relied upon as investment advice.